So we are in the season of Lent, uh, which is the 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday when we mark the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so for Lent, we are taking up our second annual project of giving up unhelpful, incomplete, or harmful beliefs. So we're following the traditional trajectory of Lent of giving something up in this season with the hope of taking up a new belief in its place. So today's belief that we are unpacking is an in-out mentality, which I think is really deeply tied to last week's belief of certainty saves. And it's easy to identify an in-out thinking by action because you can see its implications play out in community. But we wanted to spend some time talking about that, but also unpacking kind of the mindset behind this belief, especially in religious settings. And before we get really going, I did want to make a brief mention of the bingo card. Oh, because yeah, last this week, is important. I yeah. just said, here you go, and like didn't explain anything. <laughs> um, so there's a new mildly shuffled bingo card <laughs> on Discord. Um, so if you want to play bingo during our Lent series, it will be during the message portion of each service. So if Vince makes fun of himself during communion, it doesn't count. <sighs> But I'm always making fun of myself. I know. Oh, so it has to be during the message. It will it. probably Got happen it. there as well. Um, <laughs> but we will, if someone does get bingo, so last week, because I didn't make any of these clarifications, Gabby and Megan both got bingo and got a ticket to see a movie at the That's Davis, right. which is awesome. Um, so because they got it, we cleared the board and shuffled it a little bit. So that new version is posted on Discord, on the Sunday channel. Um, and then if no one gets bingo in a week, it'll carry over to the next week. Got it. So, so we'll wait until someone together. gets it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. um, so hopefully that makes sense. Cool. But yes, I just wanted to briefly mention that. I like it. it is, it's a fun way to, to make fun of us if you yep. like making fun of us. And who doesn't? <laughs> we are laughing with you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I hope so. Um, anyway, the in-out mentality. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, we, human beings need we need to we need to sort and to categorize right like evolutionarily for protection from danger this is something hardwired into how we operate is classifying things as good or bad or in or out poisonous not poisonous right predator prey right we need to do these things but part of the human condition as civilization has progressed is what's become the case is that protection from danger, that excuse is used to justify in-out mentalities against other people. This is sometimes called, um, I'm a sociology nerd, so I like to read books about um, sociology and anthropology, and it's sometimes in those settings called the scapegoat mechanism, something we've uh, mentioned before here at, uh, at uh, Brownline, so you, maybe this will be review. A book I read in preparing for our Lent series here uh, is a book called Scapegoats, the Gospel Through the Eyes of Victims by uh, a biblical scholar named Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. And she explains the scapegoat mechanism um, that was first come up with by this French anthropologist, Rene Girard. I'll put it up on the screen here for you. The way the scapegoat mechanism works is this. When something people desire is in limited supply and hotly contested, like land or power or money, uh, people become rivals. So desire leads to rivalry. And then rivalry leads to conflict or violence. And violence 
tears at the fabric of civilization. It just, it, we can't sustain violence. And so eventually, societies realize something has to be done to put an end to the chaos. And the observable pattern throughout the history of human civilization, people who study this say, over and over, culture after culture, is an in-out mentality emerges, the scapegoat mechanism. In-out mentalities don't arise out of nothing. They're attempts to they're attempts at solutions to societal chaos, but they're just really broken attempts at doing that that exacerbate the problem. So what happens is the powers that be in a society come together and they agree on one person or one people group to put all of the blame for the chaos in their society on. And this, this person becomes the scapegoat or this people group becomes the scapegoat. It's usually a less powerful person or group so that there's less chance that Somebody seeks revenge. And the society's demand for blame is quelled by excluding that scapegoat, or in the worst cases, killing the scapegoat. And that leads to a period of restored unity against the scapegoat. We're all together because we're against that scapegoat. We're not fighting each other anymore. But the problem, of course, is that the scapegoat mechanism, when we talk about it, like doesn't actually work, right? Like, violence will not solve the problem of violence. We hear that when it's exposed, and you're like, yeah, that's broken. And always the cycle restarts. Eventually, another scapegoat is demanded as that cycle continues. So the scapegoat mechanism, uh, this lives on to the degree that it can be hidden. When we expose it, the power is broken from it. But when it's hidden with justifications about why certain people are in and certain people are out and therefore deserve to be scapegoats, that's when it can live on. And obviously there are like the outright horrifying examples of this in the history of humanity, human sacrifice in archaic religion, uh, the Salem witch trials, the enslavement and killing of black people, the Holocaust, mm -hmm. right? But, but especially in the last 75 years, post dropping of the atomic bomb, like humanity has started to wrestle with the fact that like, wow, we are really violent. After the atomic bomb, something changed. And people have started to re, we've, we've started to reckon in a really good way with how physically violent we are, and yet, the scapegoat mechanism hasn't disappeared. It's just that we've seen the rise of more carefully hidden scapegoating. It's less physically violent, but we have things like the rise of neo-nationalism or anti-immigrant sentiments or, most to the point for us today, religious fundamentalism. So, Haley, what, when we're thinking about religious fundamentalism, when we're thinking mm -hmm. about in-out and the scapegoat mechanism, in, in, specifically in religious settings, what are the kind of carefully hidden scapegoating things that we might recognize in modern American churches? Yeah, and definitely, I think all of these can end up becoming violent hate crime yeah, oh yeah, level, yeah. and it can also exist on a microaggression level yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so some ideas here, the way that we see purity culture, scapegoating women and single people in the mm. church. We see homophobia, scapegoating the LGBTQ community. We see virtue signaling, scapegoating those people on the other side. Yep, yep. And that one is just as likely in progressive Absolutely. church settings Absolutely. too. And we see Christian supremacist attitudes, scapegoating people of other religions, or even worse, the like nominal Christians. Oh yes, I've heard that yeah. one before. How, for you personally, Haley, how do you experience this day to day? Yeah, so I was thinking about this um, in-out mentality, particularly in religious settings. And I think that so much of this mentality is rooted in a stress on heaven and hell. Yeah, sure. Um, that hell 
is the gravity of exclusion of being out. Yep. And I brought this up a couple weeks ago as an example of a belief that I didn't actually know I could choose to not believe in. Mm -hmm. I thought that believing in hell was just a necessary part of being a Christian growing up. Mm -hmm. And I didn't grow up in a very um, like fire and brimstone preaching kind of church, but hell was just kind of this accepted dark shadow of being Christian. So I carried this dissonance with me of these really beautiful values that I saw modeled around me of unconditional love and unending grace, mm -hmm. things like that, coming up against this just accepted, supposed eternal place of torment. Yeah, and yeah. that didn't line up for me. And so my mentality has kind of always wavered on the like, are we sure we're all good with this? <laughs> so I think it's made deconstructing this idea a lot easier for me. Um, and just a brief moment of deconstruction here, because I do really think that in out mentality is like absolutely weighted down by having by hell. hell. Yes. Yeah. 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 Tell us more. Yeah. So hell, when we think of it today, even if you're someone who rejects the idea of it, is not in the mindset of Jesus and the Hebrews as we see presented in the Bible. Our concept, what's been formed, is entirely different from any concept that they had of an afterlife. And there, I think it's interesting that there are multiple words that come out of the Hebrew and Greek words in the Bible that over time were all boiled down and translated to the same English word, hell. So you see this kind of be more and more simplified to one word. And a word that we have pretty strong connotations and like right, images right, of. Right. Um, but most of the time, what's being referred to as the realm of the dead is referring to all dead, not yeah. just the dead that reserve pun or the dead that deserve punishment. So we have the Hebrew word Sheol and the Greek word Hades, and those don't refer to places of punishment that are contrasted with heaven, a place of reward. They just refer to the realm of the dead contrasted with the realm of the living. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are someone who wants to go down this rabbit hole and think about it a little bit more, you can scroll way back in our archives um, to listen to our past messages. 2019, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, Kyle has a message on um, faith is not about heaven versus hell that you can listen to that has a lot of really great content there. Yeah. Um, so that's one way that I see this kind of played out. But Vince, is there a way that you see this belief day yeah, to day? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, aside from aside from more like specific beliefs like hell or heaven or something like that. Um, I had an experience recently. Um, you may know that our church has connections with lots of different denominations or traditions within Christianity. We get a lot out of that diversity. Um, a friend recently relayed to me um, the opinion floating around among some of our old church connections um, that are more evangelical in nature. Um, and the, th this friend passed on that uh, the the opinion floating around was that Brownline Church was off the deep end, was the phrase that was used. Um, yeah, isn't that fun? Yeah, you're off the deep end, everybody. Um, Why is my immediate reaction like, that's fun? Did you like this? <laughs> well, I'll go into that in a second. Like, uh, so evangelicalism has, I think, I think made really important contributions to the world. Like it's focused on the possibility of personal relationship with God for all changed my life, honestly. I mean, like, I, I did not have a concept of that until I interacted with evangelicals. And that is something that is deeply meaningful to me, that I can have my own relationship with the God of the universe. So I'm, like, pro good things from evangelicalism. But evangelicalism, of course, has also made a, many problematic contributions. And, and one of them is its focus on purity of belief as a threshold for who is in and who is out. And so slightly different from 
heaven versus hell, this specific thing, a more like kind of general, like you're either on our team or you're not on our team. A little it's bit like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's what we talk about in our welcome every week because a lot of people have experienced that if they've been in American Christian churches because evangelicalism is so, such a strong cultural force. Um, so if you are outside of the prescribed norm, then you're out and you can't be wholly trusted. And, um, you know, in the worst cases, you're scapegoated as somebody who might lead people astray. And even though, like, like you said, I feel generally comfortable in my own shoes and like I, I, I feel like I've been on a journey into the beliefs that I, that I, that I have today and still it kind of hurt to be described yeah. as off the deep end. Like I, I don't know, like I have to do internal work after that. I have to like, um, I had to like, it kind of knocked me out for a week and I had to take some moments in the mornings and take some deep breaths and pray and remind myself who I am and feel like, God, would you remind me who I am? And uh, I like, I can't deny having to do that even when in general, I feel pretty comfortable in my own skin. Um, but that, that's the thing is the Christianity we teach here has, has a, like a long and rich mm -hmm. history and tradition in many ways older than evangelicalism, but because it's not evangelical Christianity and evangelicalism is in and out, we're off the deep end. And that is, that's, that's just another example of experiencing in and out. Yeah. I think another example that comes to mind for me um, that a big way that we can see this in out mentality in action um, is a desire to set apart from others who maybe do fall in mm. a similar subcategory of society as you do. So things like I'm not one of those Christians or one of those white people or something like the not all men, not all men mentality. <laughs> um, but this is this is tricky. And I can remember a particular experience a while ago. I was in line um, for security at the airport. And if I'm traveling alone, it's like 50-50 if I want to be chatty with people or if I just want to like introvert hardcore. <laughs> Put your AirPods in. Um, but this person was standing behind me and she just asked what I did. And I, this was a while back. And I said, oh, I'm a student at a school in Chicago. And she asked what I was studying. And I said, Bible and theology. And she said, oh, I just love the religious segments on Fox News. You must too. Ooh, ooh Yeah. And I don't remember what I said back to her, but I do remember this like panicked feeling and this instinct to just want to set myself apart from yep. an image of me that she had created based on like one fact about my identity. Because it wasn't just a matter of belief, but all the implications sure. of those beliefs. So I think that the, the good behind some of this is to separate yourself out from something that you may see as potentially harmful or less self-aware to help clarify your identity and beliefs. I think it's a really natural response. But the problem here is that it's a different form of blame shifting that we're right. talking about, that you can start to become defined only by who you're not. By who you're not, yes. Instead of who you are. And I just, I think that that has a limit to how helpful it can be. Absolutely. There's a real tension there and it is not easily just, you, you just, oh, just say this and then you're out of that tension. You, it is really, really difficult to not just resort to another in out in order to separate yourself from one that you're not attached to. Yeah. Ah, that's so hard. So, okay. So this is kind of where we want to live today. We want to shine a light on some of the beautiful ways that the tradition of Jesus has been used to push beyond in out thinking, not justify it or not create a new one in place of an old one that you don't like. What are ways that the Jesus tradition can help us push beyond in out thinking? Yeah. So it's coming up with an, a different framework to kind of experiment with here. 
And we really can look to Jesus's ministry in the New Testament of the Bible to see how they wrestle with in-out thinking because they do it a lot. Yes. And so I'm wondering, Vince, if you have some examples yeah. of that for us. Yeah. So, um, so two examples of wrestling with in-out thinking um, in the New Testament. One is Jesus's teaching to love your enemies. This is often considered the teaching of Jesus that is most distinct to Jesus. You have heard it said, love your neighbors, but I say not just your neighbors, but your enemies as well. And if we map that onto this scapegoat mechanism that we talked about, basically Jesus is saying, cut the legs out from under the in-out justifications that you feel driven to hide your scapegoating. Just cut the legs out from under it and do that. You have to do that by choosing to love. You have to do that by choosing to show compassion, choosing to pray for those who persecute you, which is another part of that teaching where Jesus says, love your enemies. And and should we be doing that, then I think even though we may feel a deep in-out out there, we have an enemy, so to speak, the legs to the the, the legs that, that we stand on to make that in out so uh, violent mm-hmm. and make that in out so exclusive get cut out from under that because we we're choosing to love in the midst of that. So I think that that's a that's a real wrestling with in out in the New Testament. And then the other that uh, is often quoted, which I, I find like one of the most powerful bits of scripture, like little verses that you can just take from the entire Bible, is uh, St. Paul's famous line from Galatians chapter 3, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. You think about those three categories, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. I mean, those are laden with power dynamics, right? Every single one, there's a clear, Paul is, is, is bringing up things that make us think like there are, there are people who are in and there are people who are out, or there are, there are those who are in, in power and there are those who are not in power. And Jesus says in Christ, or in, and Paul says in Christ, none of these things, these, these, these distinctions evaporate. And this was written 2,000 years ago, right? Like that's, that's kind of radical, and what's, what, there's, a, there, there's a lot of uh, biblical um, scholarship that suggests this is such a striking, standalone, radical challenge to in-out thinking that elsewhere in the Bible's New Testament, there's actually like wrestling with that of like, I don't know, maybe this is too radical. Do we need to like temper Galatians 3? Maybe Paul was a little off the deep end because if we don't temper this, the Roman Empire is going to shut this thing down because we're being too radical. And so there's actually other places in Scripture that, that maybe like counter that and maybe well there are some ins and outs and here's how men should act and here's how women should act and here's how uh, people in power should act and here's how people and and so it's not as clean as like the Bible uh, supports one opinion on this but we can see just how we are today how those in biblical times are wrestling with mm-hmm. this, idea, this idea of like can we push beyond this can we get to get, do we have to just reinforce these things or is there something more Yeah, and I think the important thing to remember with that piece of scripture too is it's not saying that those distinctions don't matter. Like Mm. those are really valuable pieces of identity. Yes. um, Or they can be. But it's saying that the power structures the power that are structures, in place, yeah, that's yeah. what's being um, dismantled Challenged. there. And yes, definitely, there. definitely, definitely. Um, but this definitely speaks to something that we t- come back to all the time, um, this idea of a centered set rather mm-hmm. than bounded set outlook. Um, so we have a visual that we can yep. put up here. So we have these two different forms of community. And with a bounded set community, the defining issue is exactly what we're talking about. Are you in or are you out? And this is represented by a circle, the strict boundaries that represents 
all of the behavior and knowledge and beliefs that you must signal to identify as in, so it's accepted as the norm. And often the less privilege that you have within that community, the more that you have to leave behind or change about yourself in order to be in. But with a centered set, there's no enforcing of an in versus out because that's not the gathering principle. There is a centering principle, um, the person and teaching of Jesus that we can look to or a, some set of centering values for a community. And you can orient your life toward that um, principle or that person while still maintaining your own unique perspective and experiences. And each individual decides for themselves how oriented they are toward that center. So I think it's a really important distinction there that comes out of looking at the ways that we see this modeled in scripture. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So those are some frameworks that we can kind of hold to. There's this, this drive toward pushing beyond in out mentality within the tradition of Christianity and, and, and the person of Jesus. If we can return to... Um, during, during Lent, what we've been trying to do is we have this reminder from Father Richard Rohr that we cannot just think ourselves into a new way of living. We have to live ourselves into a new way of thinking. So if we're trying to leave behind in-out mentalities and take up this pushing beyond in-out mentalities, what are some practical experiments? What are ways that we can try to live ourselves beyond in-out? Yeah, I immediately think of an example of this being lived out um, in a story of Jesus that's found in the book of John. And this is um, Jesus interrupting a stoning that totally breaks up this idea of ins mm. and outs. Um, so I'm going to read this for us, but we'll put it up on the screen as well so that you can read along if you want. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go on your way, and from now on, do not sin again. So in this story, we have the Pharisees who would have had their own set of an in-out mentality. They bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus and ask if they should stone her according to the law. I think it's important to look at here that the goal of their questioning is to test Jesus. They're looking for him to contradict the law so they could have something against him. him. Yeah. Mm -hmm which tells me that they already knew his answer, but they're, ask, they're asking him anyway. Jesus was off the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> but we see this type of argument all the time, already knowing what someone else's viewpoint or stance is and bringing up a topic or question as a trap or trying to just have something to argue about. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in their own version of being not biblical. Yep. Yep. And so there's this weird part where Jesus bends down and writes on the ground twice. Um, I don't really know what that's that weird. is. Yeah. It's strange. Yeah. 
Um, but the key interrupter of violence and an in-out mentality is Jesus' statement, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Mm-hmm. And they leave. And why this is so important, Jesus is not resor- resorting to shaming here. He's just reminding everyone of their humanity. Right. So right. he's humanizing everyone involved in yeah. the story. And we often think of humanizing the dehumanized, I think, from below, from um, this humanizing people who are being considered less than. Yes, yes. But humanizing also needs to happen when we hold those, in, when we see those in power acting more than human. More than human, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this story, those in power are taking the liberty to hold the life of a woman in their hands out of judgment and spite and to prove a point. So humanizing can also be bringing down those who have either elevated themselves or whom society has elevated. And then, of course, we also have this disenfranchised woman at the center that the Pharisees are using her. So to to contrast this, Jesus is dignifying her and saving her and empowering her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, thinking about the the way that um, so many passages from the New Testament and particularly the Gospels tr- are trying to push us beyond in-out mentalities. Jesus uses a lot of binaries mm-hmm. in his teachings, and maybe those are some of the ones that when we're talking about giving up a false belief in in-out, those are the ones that like kind of ring in your mind and be like, but what about, I can't, I can't just throw this off even if I want to throw it off. Like things like the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the priest and the Samaritan, the first and the last, right? Like all of these, there's, there's a lot of binaries in mm-hmm. Jesus's teachings. And what we discover, I think, in that, in that unpacking of, of what Jesus actually does in a specific moment of scapegoating, of somebody trying, or a group trying to scapegoat another who's less powerful, is those, those, those in-outs, those, those binaries that Jesus is bringing up are a lot more about power than they are about, you know, good versus bad, mm-hmm. or you're in or you're out, right? They're about human dignity. They're not about you You are saved and you are damned. And that's it. That, that takes those binaries and really, really, when we read them, maybe we are reading something different into them if we're not so shrouded by the idea of this has to come back to you're in and you're out. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Um, I think of We've uh, we've we've brought up uh, back in back in December and then also in January we've been toying with this definition of the word salvation that was offered by a theologian who's at Xavier University, Adam Clark, and um, Adam Clark talks about salvation from a liberation perspective, and uh, it, it's sort of getting at what you are pulling out of this passage, where salvation is not dr- addressing a belief problem; it's addressing a personhood problem, mm-hmm. a human dignity problem. And so what we see is humanizing the dehumanized as as Jesus does with the woman who's about to be stoned. But then we also see calling those acting inhuman back to their humanity. And I loved your phrasing of like this, you know, we, we talk about humanizing when there's somebody who's being treated as less than human, but we also need to humanize those who are treated as more than human. I think that's a really fascinating way to say it. And and that is that is reaching out to those who are acting inhuman, who are who are who are not in touch with the compassion and the and and the things that make us who we are, and just acting and but but calling out to them as though you can. It is in you to act mm-hmm. human. We're not, we're not shaming you for doing so. We're trying to call you back to what's inside you. Yeah, and I think it's um, for us this week. We found it really interesting to root 
kind of our experiments for living yourself into new ways of thinking in this idea and in this yeah. distinction. Yeah. So we've called this um, a call to action to interrupt non-humaning. Interrupt non-humaning. Because it can happen in different ways. So in the first way, we have interrupting the dehumanizing of victims by standing up for them. It's easy to think of um, these like powerful, larger-than-life almost examples alongside of Jesus who have stood up for and empowered victims in historical movements, like what you'd mentioned before. Yep. There's a really great resource if you want some concrete examples of people like this. Um, I went through this book uh, in a course in seminary, but I also was thinking about it that this would be a really great family resource mm. to read through some different um, stories about different figures. This is a book called Can I Get a Witness? And it's a collection of 13 profiles on people like Howard Thurman, Yuri Kochiyama, Mahalia Jackson, Dorothy Day, Richard Twist. Mm. It's just a really great mm. example. But I think we can think of these really big, powerful examples. Um, but the challenger experiment here that we all can take up is how can I interrupt the dehumanizing of victims in everyday life? Right, right, right. As we actively see dehumanizing language or actions unfolding in front of us, how can we be interrupters? Mm. And I think the really important thing to remember here is that we need to do this without giving into an in-out mentality. Like That's the whole point. Um, but it can be way more tempting than I think we're aware of. Right. Um, like, like at the airport. It's yes. just really hard not to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another example of that too is um, the idea of cancel culture, mm -hmm. which is definitely an attempt to shut down people who are dehumanizing others in some way. But is cancel culture just setting up its own in-out structure? Sure. sure. It's so complicated. It yeah. really is. And then the second way is to interrupt shaming of those acting inhuman by calling them back to their humanity, those who are acting more than human. And the work of those who empower the dehumanized often simultaneously does this, tries to level with those in power. But I think that the concrete actions we can take as experiments are different here. The question for us to consider is how can I call people back to their humanity without resorting to shame? Mm -hmm. And we can do this in individual moments and conversations, but there's also a lot of collective movements that we can participate in. So think of things, and maybe you have some more ideas of um, things that fall in this category as well. But I think of things like um, email and letter writing campaigns or phone call campaigns, reminding those in power of the power that yeah, they hold. Yeah, your older people that were just that were just elected. Yes. Letters, emails, send things to your older people. Yes. Yeah. And the the drive here isn't to shame anyone; it's to say you hold power. Yeah you have potential to protect life and to connect with those that you are serving and to make concrete changes. So it's really important that it's not a tearing down. That's not what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a really simple reminder of we're all human mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we need to be acting in ways that dignify and serve and love one another concretely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, um, I was talking with somebody recently from Brownline that said one of the things that they try to do is... Uh, always find a point of connection or agreement before, um, and then and then speaking really, um, really like clearly about uh, points of departure, but uh, but attempting to do that first is in the spirit of trying to make connections and trying to not just resort to in-out mentalities. And I, I think there's something to that. I think that's really good. So um, yeah, I I think about 
there's a uh, uh, Adam Clark who uh, we're mentioning here, um, who has this this take on um, what it, what salvation means. Was once I asked a question, um, I heard him interviewed. Does God take sides? And uh, and that's kind of an important part of liberation perspective on the gospel of God being on the side of the wounded and the hurt and the oppressed. And Adam's reply was really great. He said, um, so let's, let's assume that God loves all and that love is always context dependent. And therefore, he said, God takes sides, but not on the basis of an in-out mentality, rather on the basis of God honoring the dignity of every human. And this was a helpful distinction for me. So like he said, consider a situation of domestic abuse. I'd say for the abused, the dehumanized, Salvation and love is getting that person to safety, caring for their wounds, privileging their needs so that they can feel human again. But for the abuser, the one acting inhuman, salvation or love is stripping them of, stripping them of their privilege and ability to be like, uh, in, in control for the time being, and then calling to their humanity within with the hope that they can be returned to human ways. And so in this way, God is on the side of the victims. God chooses sides and, at the same time, pushes us beyond an in-out mentality because what we are holding to is this human dignity goal, not a you're in and you're out. Yeah. That, that really helps me. I, I think that, 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 that makes sense. That is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts here as we close? I do. I want to I say one last thing um, as, we, as we finish. Um, so we began talking about the scapegoat mechanism as one way to see in out and how that mentality plagues human beings and how the scapegoat mechanism lives on to the degree that it can be hidden with justifications. You know, in out mentalities thrive when we are convinced ourselves that these people are really out and these people are really in and that's why we need to do this. That's why we need to exclude the, the people who are out. And Part of the interesting story of the development of this idea, scapegoat mechanism, is that uh, René Girard, this French anthropologist who first coined this phrase, scapegoat mechanism, um, this fact about how scapegoating needs to be hidden is what actually led Girard to become a follower of Jesus later in life. Uh, He said the incredible thing about the Gospels is that they, in nearly every way, mirror that familiar age-old pattern of here's the scapegoat mechanism happening again, and and yet another culture, yet another time, except in one way the Gospels are different. And the Gospels are different in, in that Jesus, the scapegoat, is knowingly innocent. That's what makes them so unique, and that's what makes them so startling, and, when, and that's what's given them such an endurance to, to live on of like, wait, this is about the same thing that every civilization struggles with, but the scapegoat is, is they're, they're making, they're insisting the entire time the scapegoat is innocent. And so I, I, I'll bring up one more quote here from, this is from um, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, who we mentioned before, and uh, well, this is what she writes about this. She says, a scapegoat that is knowingly innocent completely reverses the effect of the scapegoat sacrifice. Gerard suggests that the main purpose of the Gospels and the Bible as a whole is to make victims visible, to unearth victims of collective violence and reveal their innocence. It was not God who sacrificed Jesus. It was people. Jesus' undeserved death at the hands of a violent mob exposed the core nature 
of our sin in order to liberate us from it. This is the beginning of our salvation from sin and ourselves. And I, we will talk more about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as Lent goes on. But today, I just wanted to say, like, that idea is the most captivating reason to look to Jesus on the cross that I've ever heard. And if the imagery of Jesus on the cross, Jesus' sacrifice, is at all wrapped up for you in unhelpful beliefs that you feel like you might need to leave behind or give up for, for Lent, this is an alternative belief in Jesus accomplishing something on the cross that I wonder if that stirs your heart a little bit. Mm -hmm. Making victims visible, exposing this thing that happens again and again and again so that we can stop it, so that we can be freed from it. That's a really different idea than Jesus going to the cross to save those who are in and condemn those who are out. Mm -hmm. It's really different. And so um, it'll get, we, we'll pick this up again. This, this idea will come up again so we don't, you don't have to feel like you totally you know, like grasp it. If, there, if it just starts questions for you, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe, maybe God is in that in some way uh, if, if that just you know, gets some, some things firing in your brain as we talk about it. Yeah, I just, I love that last line of this is the beginning of our salvation from sin and ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important that that's not a, a judgmental, in, out, saved, unsaved mentality. That's a reminding us of the love and humanity modeled in Jesus and being um, called to participate in that yes, as yes. something that's unifying and hopeful and expansive, not exclusive. Yes, yes. Well, why don't I uh, close us in prayer here? So if you would join me um, in praying, I've been thinking about how really fear and shame are the primary things that I think are behind an in-out mentality. And fear and shame, I think it's safe to say, are not liberating or hopeful. And so I'd love for us to consider in prayer what a different grounding idea could be for us. So this is going to kind of be a mindfulness prayer. So um, if you're participating in this and listening and your mind is wandering and you're thinking about your to-do list and what you're going to eat for lunch, that is totally fine. <laughs> in mindfulness, it's part of the exercise. You can notice the wandering that's going on and just call yourself back to the practice if it feels helpful or take the time to just really focus on your breathing. So the centrality of your breathing is going to be really important for this. So if you want to just get comfortable in your seat, you can close your eyes if that feels helpful or find something um, in the room to just focus your vision on. I'll take a moment here just to be still and to pray. Jesus, as we take a moment to be still, would you help us to identify some core tendency that we wrestle with? Maybe it is the prevalence of fear or shame. Maybe it's something like comparison or cynicism, apathy, despair. Help us now to identify something that we are wrestling within us.
And as you bring this to mind, I just invite you to consider how acknowledging that tendency feels in your body. Jesus, would you help us to identify something else that we are longing for to be at the center? Something like dignity, hopefulness, self-compassion, wonder, love. What are you longing for to be at your center? And would you imagine these values radiating out from your core? What would it look like for dignity, hope, compassion, whatever has come to mind? What would it look like for that to set the tone for the way you are in the world? Your conversations with others, your inner conversations with yourself, your priorities, your plans. What would it look like for love to guide the way instead of fear or shame? Jesus, would you help us to move away from the fearful, shaming tendencies to categorize and set strict rules for who is in and who is out? Would you help us lean into what is most loving and liberating in the world? Amen.